Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 38. This week, we talked to Janet Yielding about Azure Stream Analytics, how Stack Exchange handles 560 million page views each month, and unit tests are finally getting smarter. Hey, Carl, I'm freezing. Yeah, me too. I actually I almost had some frozen pipes this morning. No water came out of my shower, but we got her oh, fixed. Oh, really? Oh, geez. Yeah, I'm nowhere near that level. But last night I started my car at the airport and uh, I wish I would have recorded it because I've never heard sounds like that before. <laughs> it was pretty terrifying. They could use them in a horror show. Anyway, so today we have Janet Yielding. She's a program manager on the Azure Stream Analytics team. How's it going, Janet? Oh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, coming on. I have... Um, I've been trying to get somebody on for stream analytics for a while and just schedules finally lined up. So I'm glad to be talking to you. So let's jump into the news. What do we got here, Carl? Actually, this first one is awesome, Carl. The stack overflow performance. Yeah, I mean, I know you've always been really interested in looking at how performant and and the techniques that big sites use to just stay on the edge of, you know, managing their sites and, Mm -hmm. you know, delivering things as efficiently as possible. And if you go to stackexchange.com slash performance, you can see an overview on, you know, the statistics on what they're serving. Um, You know, some cool things right off the top. They get 560 million page views a month, uh, 34 terabytes a month. And they do that on nine web servers. So, I mean, go back 10 years ago, you would have, that would have been, you know, several orders of magnitude higher than that just to get something similar. Well, actually, I've been kind of following them from the beginning. They've always kind of fascinated me. And actually, the reason I'm interested in this kind of stuff is because this is what I help people build. Yeah. So, <laughs> but so um, go ahead. But at the beginning, they they had very similar architecture, but yeah. they didn't have the page views. So they've been able to keep their yeah. hardware kind of at a more uh, you know static level, but squeeze yep. more and more out of it. Yeah, they've had kind of a non-traditional scale-up method, but and what I like is a lot of these really big sites like this, or the, these sites that grow over time, there's a couple of different growth patterns. What I like is they all have a completely different strategy for this. I mean, some t- some of these companies will employ, you know, a thousand servers that are all, you know, commodity hardware, and here they're using a little bit high-end machines, um, and they're, they're, they're really trying to be efficient in their usage. But one thing that I really wanted to point out on here is that they have, let me grab you the numbers. So they have 560 million page views per month. Sounds like a lot, right? Whenever it comes down to it, they are handling 185, somewhere between 185 and 250 requests per second. So I'm sure you've seen like people benchmark, you know, different languages, different frameworks, and they're like, oh, this is only 1500 requests per second. I don't think people realize like how that math sort of translates out into what you can actually handle. I mean, let's say we were building a, an e-commerce site um, or, I mean, even look at Amazon um, at their scale. I mean, the reality is, you know, you as one user, you're really only requesting a page, you know, at most every few seconds. You know, you're really, we're really intermittent in how we request things. So I, I think they really take this to, to heart here. They're able to offload most of the, um, uh, you know, I think all big sites do this, most of the assets off of that. And then the biggest thing here is caching. And the actual processing that's required is just minimal because it's it's very uh, infrequent that they actually have to like regenerate a page. Yeah, and, and another thing that they show alongside with those statistics is the peak, and I think that's kind of important too because I know a lot of times when we've talked about uh, various Azure services and we talk about you know what kind of performance they have, 
And uh, like down over by the Redis one, it says something about like 3,000 requests a second or, or yep. 60,000 operations a second. Yeah. And I, I remember like some of the, uh, you know, equivalent stuff in Azure can handle way more than that. And I'm like, if if a system of sites like this only peaks at 60,000 ops a second, there's no way that you even need to be concerned about the performance of Azure. Right, right. Well, I mean, these services like Redis is, I mean, that's what it's it's designed for is to just be pounded as a cache server. Um, and then there's Elasticsearch servers here. I mean, they're just using each tool for what it's designed for. And you you can see that it works out very well. And their site performs extremely well. Uh, what I like too is they have their programming stack. So it's C-sharp plus ASP.NET MVC. Um, they're using Dapper ORM. I haven't used that when I looked at it. It looks pretty, um, pretty simple. Um, and then they actually have their own implementation, which is pretty nice of the, um, of a Redis client. Uh, and then they're also using mini profiler, which, um, one of the guys that works there, he actually showed me that on like their production system and how they can profile their system. It's really cool. So anyway, check that out. It's kind of a neat graphical representation. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. What's this next one, Carl? I've never heard of this application lister. Yeah. So last week, uh, I mentioned just, uh, some stuff that I was doing and, uh, you said it doesn't exist until it's out on GitHub. So here it is. Um, just, yep. just as a reminder, uh, this application just will go through and figure out what's installed on your computer. Uh, it uses a, just a couple of techniques, but you know, it kind of mashes the results together and kind of removes the duplicates. So if you just run this as a console app, uh, it'll spit it out into your console and generate, um, a, a file for you to look at later as well. Um, cool. it's open source, do with it what you want. It exists. Okay. <laughs> so you had a, you had a project where you, you needed this kind of functionality. Yeah. So on the, on the side for a lot of my friends, I don't really do this open outside of my friends, but you know, I'll fix your computers and stuff. And somebody had a really nasty virus that messed up enough of their like internet stack where I couldn't get on Wi-Fi anymore. And he had enough custom wow. programs on there. I just wanted, I'm like, I'm not going to sit down and yeah, you just wanted to export it. Okay. That's pretty cool. So I just wrote this kind of quickly to export everything that he had so I could figure out what he needed later. Uh, something that would be really cool is once the chocolatey.exe uh, gets released, would be hooking into something like that and have it generate the script that you need to build yourself a new computer off of that. Oh, that's a good idea. So I wonder, I wonder if the chocolatey command line. Yeah. I wonder if that already has something where you can say uh, what, you know, export the packages I have installed at least. But yeah, then ultimately it could match what you have installed that's not, you know, installed via a package. It's a good idea. So there's a lot of opportunity for it, but this is just the start. Well, good job shipping it. Uh, okay, so Carl, why can't I take a screenshot of that DRM movie on my PC? Because the bytes don't exist to copy from in memory. I thought okay. this was really interesting. So <laughs> uh, this was, you know, somebody who has um, obviously a program that... Uh, can take screenshots mm -hmm. and they noticed that on Intel newer Intel based machines, if they tried to take a screenshot, it, it just couldn't grab anything. And uh, it goes through it in great detail, but it, you know, still kind of high level that on, on newer Intel machines, the actual pieces of memory that would normally say what pixel is, what color and stuff like that, they exist in a totally separate protected part of memory that nobody has access to. Except that is crazy. So I just thought it was, you know, it makes sense, but it's something that you don't really think of. You know, normally you just say, hey, why does this program busted in this way? It must be the way that does it. I don't think does it say anything about this, about uh, like Word and things like that, because you can DRM um, documents and the same thing happens if you try to screen share or print them. 
Um, it doesn't work because I've and I've tried to take a, a screenshot of those and it just shows up as a black box. Yeah, it, it says that the uh, that the pieces in the graphics driver themselves get encrypted into DRM blobs. Okay, so, so I'm I'm guessing it's using that same facility then. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. I always wonder how they did that because I tried like every kind of screenshot tool. It was in the document didn't even have. It was silly because later they sent me a non-DRM version. There wasn't anything that should have been DRM'd. Yep. I think it was somebody in a habit of just DRMing everything. Okay, what do we got? Ooh, PEX now available in Visual Studio 2015. Yeah, I just saw a passing tweet go by, and when you clicked on it, it just took you to the download for Visual Studio 2015. But um, the smart unit test, which is what PEX uh, turned into, is a really cool piece of technology that... You know, I haven't personally used it, but I'm really interested in, um, you know, both of us are really into unit testing. And uh, this is a way to automate some of those, uh, some of the unit testing that you might find a, a pain to do or you might not do otherwise. Or if you're learning, it can generate these unit tests for you. Mm-hmm. you uh, know how long I've been waiting for this, Carl? Uh, probably about four or five years. Five years. <laughs> That's when I was first reading about PEX. Uh, does it say anything about code contracts? Uh, I've seen I, something about code, code contracts with this. Okay. I'm just not sure about in the article that I, I listed. I'll have to, I'll have to look at that. Maybe that's in there as well. I've been waiting for that for five, at least five years as well. Um, very cool. Because the idea is to, you know, you, you write your tests and then this will, this will analyze, um, you know, how you're testing that code. And it will say, uh, you know, you're going to have, you potentially have like a, an, an out of bounds condition if you, um, you know, if you send in like a really large number, or even if you send in zero as an input to this, um, you're going to get a divide by zero error. And then you can, um, uh, at least back in, it was, it was back in 2009, 2008 with the, they, they had, I think it was out of uh, Microsoft research. You could go in and then you could say, well, add code contracts to disallow this. And it was attributes that would make it so that, um, you just couldn't pass zero into that function. Um, and then it, there were also tools to write the test for you. So I would say, hey, you know, if you if you didn't want to um, exclude it via code contract, you could write a test to test for it, and then you could go implement support for zero. So it looks like we're making progress. Yep, and it's out in the VS twenty fifteen preview now, and we'll have a link to download it directly. Okay, cool. I'm sure all of our listeners are smart and they test everything, so make sure you check that out. Okay, what's the output? This was fun. Yeah. And, and in fact, this is something I found and I brought up during our daily scrum and I totally derailed our scrum for <laughs> about a half hour. Um, so what this is, is just a, a few short kind of pieces of code. And what's what's fun about this is you look at it and you predict the output and you can run it right in the browser. Um, so there's some stuff like, you know, unexpected things in when you're using dynamic. So if you have the uh, the piece of code that's in there is it declares a byte equaling one. It casts it as a dynamic and then it writes, you know, a console dot write line um, that variable dot get type. And then they yeah. take that and increment it by one and get type. Well, so what 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 is the console output? Right. So a lot. I just I just want to correct one thing you said, because you said they cast it as a dynamic. Oh, but I think they're I think they're just representing it then as a dynamic. Yeah. So that, they're reassigning really, it. They're reassigning. Yeah. So that. So that's what. That's what threw me off, right? Because I'm like, okay, this thing hasn't changed at all. It's still a byte. And sure enough, they do a get type on it, and it confirms that it's a byte. But then they increment the byte by one, and it magically changes type, which you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. 
Yeah, but uh, so uh, there's uh, two pages of this, four on the first page and four on the second page, and they go over things like enumerable things and captured variables and things with parameters and and, and constructor uh, ordering. And uh, the first page I did pretty good, and the second page I did terrible on. Okay. So, Janet, do you do uh, C Sharp or you do C++? I'm more familiar with C++. Actually, okay. I had a question about what language this was in and if the behavior would change from language to language. That's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. I mean, it's in C sharp. I think, um, I think for any of th- anything that compiles down to uh, IL, um, if you wrote equivalent code, it would have uh, the same. Yeah. Thing. I mean, you're going to get the same IL because I think you can do, you can do like C net, right. And theoretically get the same, um, IL, but does like C plus plus doesn't have a concept of dynamic. Does it, I guess you, well, I guess it, I guess it does. I don't know that would, I'm not sure on the, uh, on the C plus plus side. I don't know, but anyway, yeah, go out there and, uh, and try this and, uh, and test yourself. This is, this is good. Uh, this is, if you're a C sharp developer and you want to see what, uh, rating code in Java, JavaScript is like, <laughs> this, <laughs> this will give you a tiny little hint because, because you'll start to, you know, feel helpless because everything on, on, you know, all these questions are sort of unpredictable. Yeah. That's the way JavaScript works. There's lots of those cases anyway. Uh, and then this next one, windows 10 new browser will have the most advanced features ever. Well, I would, uh, I would hope that every browser has the most advanced features ever if it's new. Yeah, but this week there was quite a few, quite a bit of talk. There was a screenshot released of the new browser that's going to be in Windows 10, and uh, apparently we're just going to reference the Verge uh, for this. is uh, It's it's called Spartan, the new browser, and it's going to be rewritten, uh, but still have heritage off the the Trident and um, you know Core and some of the other rendering pieces will be common with Internet Explorer, and it will also ship with Internet Explorer for the legacy thing. So if you have a website that just won't run on the, the latest and greatest, um, there'll be a, a fallback in Internet Explorer. Um, but, you know, it's just kind of interesting. There's obviously an evolution of the UI. It's going to be a little bit more, you know, edge to edge screen um, with more or it'll be easier to keep clean and look nice and and stuff like that. But uh, it's just kind of interesting that uh, instead of just carrying over more legacy stuff and adding new on there, they're just kind of making a hard break starting with something new. And rumor has it that uh, it'll be easier to create plugins and stuff like that as well, which IE doesn't have the greatest plugin uh, architecture right now. Uh, okay. Let's get to Janet here. This is, right. uh, this is what I've been looking forward to. <laughs> so streaming analytics. So I have, I have played around with it a little bit. And, uh, it's pretty darn awesome. And, uh, so I want to talk about some of the things that it does, but I guess first, why don't you give us uh, an introduction to what streaming analytics is or Azure streaming analytics? Sure thing. So, uh, I think everyone's familiar with traditional analytics using batch processing on data at rest. So, you know, you park the data you care about in a relational database and then issue queries over it. That works, but the issue is just that the, the time to get insight there can be pretty long. So with the modern big data landscape, there's huge volumes of data, and it's also coming through the wire at very fast velocities. Um, And we're seeing this across all kinds of industries, you know, sensor data in IoT, social media feeds, click streams. And so basically, this data needs to be processed fast, so you can get real-time 
insight onto it to react to business conditions as they change in real time. So stream analytics is concerned with questions asked in real time on data in motion. So it's a new product that's in Azure. It's in preview right now. And it's a fully managed service that is built to enable real-time insight over that data. Okay. And I just want to stress the fact there that it's it's a service. And I've I've been trying to do this with with people I talked to recently because I think there is there's a little bit of a, a mental shift for people. Um, whenever you're whenever we're talking about a service, what I try to explain to people is you go in there and you say, give me one of those, and then you have it. You know, this isn't like the old world where you have to to actually, you know, install something and, you know, fiddle with all these different knobs. Like you just, you push a button and you get it. Totally. I'm, I mean, you don't need to, or you don't need to worry about the underlying implementation, totally exactly. abstracted from the details of hardware acquisition and maintenance, um, resiliency, failover, um, no deployment expertise is needed. Mm-hmm. We've written it so that there's built-in input and output connections to other Azure services like event hubs and blobs and SQL database. So that really the only thing the developer has to worry about with their streaming job is the logic for the actual data processing. So all you need to think about is I want to transform my data in this way. Mm-hmm. And that's the only code you have to write. And that's expressed in a SQL language. Okay. So you 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 threw a lot of information at us. Um, I want to... I, there's probably a lot of our listeners that haven't, they haven't done anything like this at all. Like they're querying SQL databases, like you mentioned, that's how they get their information. So you said that this is faster and real time. So what does, what does that actually, um, you know, you mentioned sensor data, clickstream, social media. I think those were the three that you mentioned. Um, you know, what are they actually doing to that data? So let's say we have sensor data. What are they, what's actually going on there? So there's a couple different scenarios that our customers are targeting. Um, One is doing real-time dashboarding over Mm -hmm. data. So for example, let's say you have a scenario where you have sensors in a building that you're doing uh, facilities management for energy, uh, making buildings energy efficient. Mm -hmm. So you could have temperature readings, humidity, and let's say you have these sensors sending data maybe one time a second, maybe more times per second. Um, And you just want to keep track of the trends that are happening, alert if, say, a temperature goes above or below a given threshold and that building needs maintenance attention. Um, And and in these scenarios, uh, a lot of times we're talking about telemetry from systems. And the goal is really just to reduce the time to detect and the time to mitigate. Very cool. So one one way that I've explained this to people, too, is... um, you know, you query a database and in this case it's, it's, it's a query, but it's a, it's like temporal query, right? We're, we're querying things as they're happening. And like you mentioned, you know, it could be a, a live dashboard that's displaying, you know, sort of in something, you know, interesting data that's coming out of that data stream. Um, what are some of the common scenarios that, that this is a, a designed to address? I know you talked about like energy and things like that. Are there any other ones that are really popular? We're doing an interesting scenario with connected cars. We're Mm -hmm. partnering with an automotive manufacturer, and they're building in these safety features. So they have sensors on cars uh, around when the brakes are activated. They also have sensors on tires to tell what kind of friction the car is encountering. And that data is sent in real time and analyzed to try to tell if a given car is coming across unsafe conditions. 
Um, so that's the analysis that's happening. From there, they're looking to do machine-to-machine -machine communication so that that car could alert other vehicles in the area about potentially unsafe conditions. So that's a really cool Internet of Things scenario that we're working on. Um, you could also imagine longer term extending that with machine learning to do anomaly detection and predictive uh, analysis and predictive maintenance there. Wow, that's really cool stuff. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just wish that I my my stereo had an input for my for my phone. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Well, Go ahead, Carl. Well, speaking of inputs, you know, let's get a little bit of terminology out of the way. You know, you mentioned, you know, inputs and outputs and, you know, be connecting Azure services. So can you just go over that so we have a little bit more of a de definition to work with here? Definitely. So stream analytics is part of a pipeline. It's part of an end-to-end -end solution. So when we're talking about these event processing scenarios, there's a pretty standard flow. One is just ingesting these events. So with devices and platforms, you have events coming from all over the place. They're probably geo-distributed if it's uh, with devices and sensors. And so you would use something like event hubs to do event ingestion to get all the information you care about in one place. From there, you'd use stream analytics to do processing, correlating, transformation over that data um, using our query language, which will then create output events. And from there, you're going to have your data sent to some sort of output sync. Depending on your scenario, you might use different sources. So if you want to fuel a dashboard, or if your data is going to be consumed by an application later on, egressing to Azure SQL database would be a good fit. Maybe you want to do later long-term processing. Maybe you want it in cold storage for um, compliance reasons, or just because you want to do a more robust analysis later on. In that case, blob storage would be a good fit. And we also can egress to event hubs again, which is a cool scenario where you have the ability to compose multiple processing pipelines together, um, mm -hmm. which is really powerful for doing command and control scenarios and issuing um, programmatic actions. Cool. Yeah. So Carl, I, like I mentioned, I had used this mm -hmm. and, uh, this thing is, it's like magic. So you go in there, <laughs> um, you go in there and, and, and it's literally inputs and outputs on, uh, I think it's on tabs or different sections. And you, you say here, point to this, uh, this, this event hub and output to this other event hub, or like you mentioned output to this database. And you can, you can literally just say, I just want to pass this through. I don't, you know, I don't want to actually run any kind of sophisticated queries. I, I haven't gotten any into the, the complex querying yet, but I just said, just take this data from here and put it over here. And, you know, I started that thing up and it just started working like magic, you know, taking data from, from point A to point B. It's really cool stuff. I know Carl, we've, we've done stuff like that in the past and it was, it was a lot of code and um, a lot of work building all those different adapters. So I, it was really cool. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking at some of these examples. You've mentioned the query language a few times and anybody who's familiar with SQL um, definitely would feel at home with this language. I mean, it, mm -hmm. I can see a few things that might be a, a little bit different, but it, it, it's definitely something that people are used to. So I can see a, you know, a, a low barrier to entry for, you know, somebody who has that skill set. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about that for a while. Do you want to explain to us like, you know, how you, how you query that stream of data going past, what, what that looks like? Yeah, so it, it's built to look as much like T-SQL as possible. So the constructs that you would expect to be there are there. So you mentioned a pass-through query, where you're just taking your events and egressing them without any transformation. That would just be a select star from the friendly name of your input source. Mm -hmm. um, but you could extend on that to do 
um, joining multiple streams together. Uh, we support the aggregations from T-SQL, like sum, average, and count. Um, there's also functions for dealing with strings and date time. Mm -hmm. um, and then we've extended on the language to do temporal querying. So there's a lot of cases where you might want to average events over a given time period. Um, you know, a lot of these cases, there's so many events per second, you would want to kind of aggregate them down to a smaller set. Um, and those those have to be temporal in nature. So we've built in windowing functions where you can say um, it's, it's in a group by clause. So you'd group by tumbling window, and then you'd say the time period that you wanted to group those events over. It can be anywhere from seconds to days, depending on your scenario. And I mentioned tumbling window. That's a specific kind of windowing function that's just a, a non-overlapping, repeating time window. Hey, um, can you also explain sliding window? Because I've seen some stuff talking about that as well. And, you know, how are they similar and different? Yeah. And are there other yeah. options as well? Yep. So tumbling window is the simplest one. Um, that's a static size window that just keeps repeating. A hopping window is also a static window, but it could be potentially overlapping. So, for example, if I wanted to get uh, an average over 10 seconds, but I want to repeat that every five seconds, uh, that would be a hopping window. So, in that case, a given event could be in more than one window, depending on how I've defined my hopping window. Um, whereas tumbling windows, an event is only in one window. And a sliding window continuously moves forward, and it's triggered whenever an event is encountered. So, so is that something the, that would automatically expand, or is that something you have to define to do that? A sliding window is still a fixed size. Okay. Um, it's just that it's triggered every time you see an event. Okay. So it's useful for answering questions like, let's say you had a um, building security scenario, and you wanted to know any time a given badge was used in more than two locations in five seconds for a fraud detection scenario. For that one, it wouldn't work to just have static windows because if things happen on either sides of the window barrier, you might miss it. So you'd want to trigger that window every time an event is encountered. Pretty cool stuff, huh, Carl? Yeah. Being able to write that as a, as a query. <laughs> this is kind of mind-blowing. I mean, the, the, the code, if you look at the, some of the code uh, samples, I mean, it's, it's pretty trivial to write these. And when I say trivial, it's trivial to write kind of the easy things. I'm still trying to wrap my head around all the different, uh, you know, temporal options. It's kind of like whenever I first was learning SQL, um, but it, it looks, you know, completely understandable. Um, so one question I had whenever I was setting this up, um, so I was using event hubs as my input. So I was taking, I was just generating uh, sensor data off of like a raspberry Pi as an example. I was going into event hubs. I was using that as an input into my streaming analytics. Um, how does that work with consumer groups? Is it reading off the default consumer group or is it using its own consumer group? So as a default, um, we're, we're using the default consumer group, okay. which means that if you want your event hubs to have other receivers, you should create other consumer groups for those mm -hmm. um, just to kind of isolate where the data is being read from. Um, okay. We're working right now on enabling you to customize which consumer group a given job is associated with. Okay, perfect. Yeah, because I, I already use, you know, a separate consumer group for each of my uh, services that are, you know, reading off of there. So for right now, I'll just let um, streaming analytics have the default one until I can configure that. Um, and then one thing, you know, that so the scenario that I talked about where I'm just passing through that data, um, it, it sort of feels like cheating, but does it does it make sense to just use it that way and not actually be writing any kind of meaningful query? 
Oh, it's totally a valid use case. Okay. We have a, a lot of customers who want to archive their data and look at it later. Um, so in, in that sense, they're kind of just using stream analytics as an adapter to that output source. Um, although most of the time, there's some sort of basic processing that we're finding out that customers want to do. Um, some common scenarios are stripping off PII data before that data is stored. Personally identifiable information. Yep. Thanks. <laughs> Guilty of the acronym. Over no, years. I am too. Uh, that's why I, I try to help out when I can. <laughs> yep. Um, or another another common scenario is adding a geotag to given events. Um, so in this scenario, you're using stream analytics to do a really basic transformation over the data and then just uh, writing it to cold storage. So in that sense, uh, stream analytics is a service that's just optimized for low latency writes to cold storage. Right, right. Yeah, it, that's that's very cool. I hope that syncs in for everybody. And actually, I'll I'll be talking about a little library that I wrote uh, as my Azure pick of the week. But um, you know, sending data up to event hubs is pretty darn easy. And now, like I said, without any code, with just that one line, that SQL, you know, select star from, um, with just that one line of code, you can be putting that data into a SQL database or a couple different stores, and that that just blows my mind. Uh, it's just so easy to to do. Um, so one thing I'm curious about is what kind of scale can I get from streaming analytics? So it really depends on what your events look like. Um, so you can configure the scale that you need in terms of streaming units, which is a blended measure of CPU, memory, and throughput. As far as the benchmark goes, one streaming unit equals one megabyte per second. Oh, yeah, one megabyte per second of throughput. Um, in your job, and we throttle at that point. So if, for example, you had, uh, we have a scenario where a customer has 700 million events per day. Mm -hmm. um, when you do the math, that's 8,000 events per second, and based on wow. the size of their events, it ends up being six megabytes per second. Okay. So in that scenario, that customer would need six streaming units. That sounds reasonable. So yeah. what... So I know it's still in preview, but what would something like that cost then? You know, because I know that's something that people are going to ask. Yep. So to give a, a baseline, uh, the lowest level, which is one streaming unit, is about $25 per month, um, which is pretty reasonable. We bill on two components. The first is just the volume of data that's processed by the job, which is about one cent per 10 gigs. And then the streaming unit price is $0.76 cents per day per streaming unit. And because we're in preview right now, our current pricing is half of those values. Okay. So what I'm hearing is like zero for everything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the honestly. $25 figure is a good thing to keep in mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, the scenario that you talked about is still, I mean, I, I can only imagine what kind of uh, cost that would take it had they taken a different route. And, uh, you know, six streaming units, I mean, even doing the math on that, it sounds like, I mean, it's like a rounding error in their bill, I assume. <laughs> um, so how, I know that there's one thing that I've run into is there's a little bit of confusion because there's, um, you know, there's other products out there. I, I don't know about a lot of them, but I know about uh, like, for example, Apache Storm. So how do I choose between, um, you know, Azure Streaming Analytics and something like Apache Storm? So Storm is currently offered in Azure on HD Insight. Mm -hmm. So they're both offered as platform, as a solution offerings. Mm -hmm. um, so both of those solutions are going to allow Azure customers to be abstracted from the hardware and software maintenance of, you know, keeping their own um, cluster up and running. 
As far as the trade-offs between both of those offerings, it really comes down to complexity and cost. Storm has higher developer costs just because it's it's more code. It's .NET code, and um, it doesn't is Storm, have. Is Storm .NET by default, or is it Java? I, I honestly oh, don't. Excuse even me. Know. It is. It is Java. Java by default. Our team did a, a recent exercise where we built out a solution on a couple of different offerings, um, okay. com- and with the competitive landscape, and the implementation on Storm was about nineteen hundred lines of Java code. <laughs> and using stream analytics, it was 15 lines of SQL since the only part that was coded up was the logic. That's amazing. And just th- because there's built-in temporal semantics, the temporal semantics are what's really tricky to get right uh, oh. with Storm. Um, so because there's built-in functions for that, the the learning curve and the bar to entry is a lot lower. However, the trade-off there is you know the ability to have customized code and and to build out your own solutions using Storm. Um, also, you know, if you needed to extend it, Storm has the ability to connect to a number of other syncs that we may not have adapters for. Um, I think I haven't mentioned it earlier, but the set of sources that Stream Analytics to c- can connect to is Event Hubs, Blobs, and Azure SQL Database. So mm-hmm. if you needed to connect to a different sync, Storm would be a good fit there. Okay. Oh, and lastly, just because Stream Analytics is a multi-tenant solution, we're able to keep the, the cost down a fair bit. Um, so it could be a, a lower solution, depending on the scale that you need, as opposed to having to get an entire HDI cluster for a no, that, storm Yeah, that's such a solution. good point. And like I said, I mean, me, me thinking about paying for and managing my a whole HD Insight cluster is kind of crazy. I mean, it, it really depends on... Uh, you know, what your scenario is there, whether or not that makes sense to you. Cause I, you know, I work with um, some companies that, that they already are running an HD cluster and they're just like, Oh yeah, we're just going to use Apache storm and it's a piece of cake and we do Java and okay, that's fine. But um, you know, I, I've talked to other people. They're just like, I just want this to be easy. I, I don't, I don't need all that complexity. Right. <laughs> Any, you know, last upcoming features that you can share with us that Certainly. might be coming soon. Yep, I can. I can some stuff. <laughs> so right now, we just have- t- just talk, just talk quietly. <laughs> that works. <laughs> We're running a, a small preview right now, where um, we can output directly to Power BI. So that enables you to have live dashboards built in without having to, you know, build out your own visualization or presentation layer. Um, so that's exciting. We're also adding support um, for machine learning, which is, you know, the next logical thing that a lot of customers are asking for. Um, Instead of just analyzing their data as it's coming in, they want to do pattern training and anomaly detection and predictive uh, maintenance over their scenarios. So machine learning is something that we're working on right now, too. Okay, very cool. Um, Anything that we didn't mention that you wanted to mention before we move on? Did we cover everything? Uh, I would like to mention that the SQL language piece, we have some in-browser support just to play around with it. So without having to pay for a job or to actually deploy anything, we have functionality where on the query page of your job, you can uh, upload just sample data in that's in JSON format and play around with the query language there. Um, we have a blog post that kind of has some samples to get people started too. Okay. Yeah, so, that was you know. that was very cool. Um, because I went in there. That's how I came up with my super simplistic query. But that is pretty neat. Neat being able to um, basically run some experiments on the data before I put it into um 
you know, production. Cool. Okay. So let's move on. Azure pick of the week. So this ties in really well, actually. I was building something and I wanted just a drop dead simple way of sending data over to event hubs, which is already pretty darn easy. And uh, what I ended up doing is I just wrote this real simple library. It's uh, it's a Node.js application. What it allows me to do is just with really, really simple syntax, send messages over to event hubs. And I did some performance optimization. So I was able to get about three to 400 messages per second. Um, on a Raspberry Pi, I was able to send about 40 mess- messages per second. So if you think about what we've been talking about earlier in the show, what's kind of neat about this is you can take a brand new Raspberry Pi, uh, install Node.js on it, uh, import this package, drop in just a couple lines of code that that are um, where you're sending up you know, some kind of sample data, and then uh, go into stream analytics, create, uh, you know, create this pass-through query and start inserting this into a database so you can analyze it later. Or you can go in there and write some queries and actually start to get some, some you know, patterns off of that data or look for, you know, uh, values that are out of spec or whatever. It just makes it super easy. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes, but um, it makes this whole, um, this whole pipeline really easy to use. And then Carl, what do we have for the app of the week? Uh, this week's app, app of the week is the VLC player for Windows Phone. Um, mm-hmm. We'll also have uh, links in there to the Windows 8.1 Metro and their standard client as well. Uh, those of you who don't know, VLC is uh, originated on the desktop as one of the best, you know, just video players there were. If you had any kind of media that you couldn't play anywhere else, this is what I downloaded to just, you know, play it on. And uh, mm-hmm. this uh, over the last few months, they've been working on their Windows Phone client. And uh, it was been in private beta for a while. And this week it came out as a public beta. So just realize it's not finished yet. If you find something, be nice, report it to the, uh, you know, the guys that are making this. Um, I found that, you know, you install it, you open it up. It'll search your entire phone for any media that it can play. And you can just tap what you want and it'll start playing it. Uh, Very simple at this point, but very useful. Very well thought through. Cool. Does it support like a wide range of codecs like the desktop version does? Um, I don't know exactly what it's, you know, does and doesn't support at this point. Um, I imagine anything that your phone could natively play would be pretty simple for it. So um, the couple of things that I did already have on my phone, obviously, uh, were of the right format. So I I haven't been able to put it through its paces, but um, just being familiar with that brand and how it works, you know, that's another big thing that's huge for people, too. Yeah, because VLC, I mean, they they really have a reputation for, um, I, I've heard people say, you know, a VLC won't play it, like it's just unplayable. I mean, it'll play like anything. Um, so that, that's why I'm curious on this. But yeah, it looks like it has a nice interface and uh, it's a pretty neat app. Okay, so let's get to the, let me, I got to pull out this card game. I, I didn't have this ready ahead of time. And Janet has heard a couple episodes, so she knows how this is played. So I'm going to pick the, I'm almost out of cards here. Okay, here we go. Pick a number between one and four, Janet. Three. Three, okay. (laughs) Would you rather have rainbow-colored hair? Actually, that'd be pretty cool. Or always have braces on your teeth? I think I have to go with rainbow-colored hair. Yeah, that seems like a a (laughs) no-brainer. Carl doesn't uh, have that choice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, rainbow-colored head. Okay, pick a number between one and four, Carl. I'll pick four. Four, okay. Would you rather live in a world where aliens are our masters or where insects are our masters? <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm watching X-Files right now and we're almost finished. Um, so 
Uh, just, you know, seeing what aliens want to do. I, I, I don't know what an insect would want us to do, so I might take the chance to have the insects as the masters. They yeah, seem more they, benign. Yeah. How, how would that, how would that work with the insects? I, I don't really understand. Do they like swarm to like speak to us or I don't, I don't understand how they've mastered communication. Well, I guess we'll, uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let's see here. Janet, where can people find you if they want more information? I would advise hitting up our team forum. Okay. Which is linked on Azure if you just search for stream analytics. Okay. And I know Carl's going to, yeah, he's going to include a lot of links here. What about Twitter? Yep. You can also reach me personally. Uh, I'm Janet Yielding. Yielding is Mm Y-E-I-L-D-I-N-G. Perfect. And what about you, Carl? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Okay, and you can find me at ytechie.com or at twitter.com slash ytechie. And Janet, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this is great. This is a really neat service. I hope everybody at least checks it out because um, this is one of those services where you're going to run into a, a, a scenario where this will make your life much, much easier and uh, you should be aware of it whenever you find it. So thank you for coming on. That was great. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. 